Welcome to the In Common Podcast. This is Hatley Post. This inside episode comes from full episode 92 with Caitlin Cordes. Caitlin is an international lawyer and researcher who focuses on human rights and sustainable development. Most recently, Caitlin spent eight years developing and leading the Columbia Center on Sustainable Investments work on land, agriculture, food systems, and human rights. Here, Caitlin talks with Michael about her work at CCSI on coffee production and commodity chains, where she worked to ensure sustainability and resilience in the production chain, as well as living wages for farmers. This is the In Common Podcast. Can we talk about your work on coffee and commodity chains? How did that start? Yeah. Um, so I don't remember which year, maybe 2018 or so, um, I was at the center and, um, coffee prices were just atrociously low at the time. Like they were so low that most coffee farmers could not even recoup the costs that it, the expenses that they had in growing and producing the coffee. Um, so it was pretty dire for a lot of, of coffee farmers and, uh, a group of coffee um, producer representatives uh, approached Jeff Sachs, who was the the development economist who, um, among many, many other roles that he has, uh, chairs the advisory board for the center, um, and asked him to do some research looking at um, global coffee prices and how producers can be economically viable um, in coffee production. And they partly asked him and the center to do to do this because the coffee space was feeling a little bit polarized to them like there was kind of a lot of blaming between kind of the coffee producers and the brands and the companies and others about like who was responsible for the fact that coffee farmers were not able to 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 cover their expenses Um, so we did a a very long piece of research looking at the economic viability of coffee production from the perspective of producers looking both at coffee prices and historically um, how coffee farmers have fared, but then also at climate change um, and kind of what climate change means for coffee producers moving forward and coffee production generally. Um, and and I think in 2019 published like a 140 page paper on this. Um, It was a really interesting exercise in a lot of ways. We brought in um, one of my coworkers who's an economist because there were a lot of economic questions that I was not equipped to to think about or work on. Um, And we were really trying to figure out like creatively what would be the best approach for ensuring that coffee farmers can be economically viable. and it was really challenging because you know coffee is produced in like lots of countries, um, and there is a lot of coffee production as well. So, you know, people say the low prices were partly because productivity increased so much in Brazil and Vietnam, and there's just kind of a glut of coffee. So then, what do you do about that if you are trying to ensure that coffee farmers in Colombia and all of these other countries are also able to to earn a living income? Um, and uh, we, we thought about a lot of different approaches you could take, like a coffee cartel, like OPEC style, um, mm-hmm. 
through to um, kind of getting the companies on the hook for paying a dignity price um, for their coffee that could then somehow get tracked down to the farmer. And then after lots of research and a lot of internal debate, um, we finally settled on suggesting the creation of a global coffee fund, um, whereby companies, um, people like on the downstream could pay into a fund that could then be distributed to coffee farmers in various producing regions to support you know, um, their own livelihoods and kind of sustainable development in coffee producing um, regions. So that was the first project. Um, and it was interesting and exhausting. And I wasn't sure if I was going to work on coffee again after that. But then a, a year or so later, um, uh, we were approached by an investor who was trying to understand kind of sustainability and coffee supply chains and how much of what he was seeing and being told by brands was greenwashing versus how much was like actually accurate in terms of their sustainability. So we ended up doing another um, report looking at kind of living income issues for producers, but also looking at the specific practices of 10 of the largest coffee roasters and brands uh, to try to understand kind of how, how likely was it that their practices would support producers in, in being able to achieve at least the living income. Okay. Um, yeah, I remember when I was reading one of the reports you sent me, Caitlin, actually, I was, I was very surprised. I had no idea that Vietnam made so much coffee. Yeah. I and was it's, like, it, yeah. yeah, pretty new. I think like, well, I guess not so new now, but like in like early two thousands is when their production really, really ramped up. Off. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it seems like there's two stories I think about in this space. One is the whole uh, kind of international economic story that I was taught at some point about comparative advantage so that each country, right, should specialize in doing one thing, even if it only has a relative and not absolute advantage in doing this. Yeah. Um, and of course, that it's a whole optimized for one thing at the expense of being vulnerable to lots of other things, which seems to be more and more we're, we're taking the optimum and, and vulnerable approach. Right. And so what we're seeing is that because this is, you know, the main thing that's produced in a lot of these countries, they're vulnerable to like price shocks. They don't have other things to fall back on. Right. And the other piece of the other story that I think about is partly based on my own work with farmers in a couple of different countries, but I'd suppose mostly in the Dominican Republic, it just seems to be that farmers in lots of places, some of them can look actually fairly empowered. I work with fairly industrialized farmers and also in the US, right? There's farmers that in the US that use lots of really expensive machinery. It's, but the margins can be low, there's fierce competition. And ultimately the, the picture you get of a lot of these farmers is, is kind of not very empowered cogs in these very big machines. Yeah. And here's the part where I'm, I'm not sure it's fair to apply my experience to your context, but I've, I've been very worried about the systems where I work in, in kind of predatory intermediaries, where mm -hmm. you can use the gender term middlemen as, as folks that have a lot of power. And so again, in the Dominican Republic, there's these agrochemical companies that 
they just have a lot of power in the system. They're selling the inputs to the farmers. They're charging them high interest rates. Um, for oh, they're giving them loans and then charging them high interest rates on the loans, requiring that they then spend the money on the chemicals that they're selling. So, how I guess the question that results from those observations slash assumptions is in order to make change in this space, you know, there are like powerful actors. How much do we need to deal with the idea of power and the fact that some people have power and other people don't? Yeah, absolutely. I think power is like the biggest issue. Um, I never studied political economy, but at some point a couple of years ago, found myself in my job really wishing I had a PhD in political economy because I think I think a lot of regardless of whether it's land grabs or kind of coffee supply chain, so much of it comes down to power dynamics and who holds power and who doesn't. And then how do you how do you use tools or can you even use tools to kind of rein in some of the power and make things at least, if not equitable, like to create systems where you know, people aren't completely dominated by the more powerful actors and they do have some autonomy and, and can make decisions um, that support good dignified livelihoods. Um, in the coffee space, you know, some people who had been working in coffee for a long time described the coffee world as kind of moving more and more towards power being concentrated in the hands of kind of a smaller number of roaster and retailers. Um, and that in their telling of the story was different from um, how it had been even maybe a decade or so ago when the um, when the traders had more power and, you know, the traders were like some of the middlemen who are um, you know, getting the, getting the coffee either directly or kind of through a few different steps of um, intermediaries and then selling it on to the roasters and retailers. But that the, the overall concentration of power was like moving more and more to the um, roaster and retailers so that the farmers have ended up with like almost no power and the traders are basically doing whatever the roasters and retailers will pay them to do, but are losing their own power as well. And, and then the roasters and the retailers have, um, you know, a lot of power. They, I think would say the roasters and retailers and others like in that downstream space say they're creating value. And I think that's like an interesting question too, of like, what is actual value creation and value extraction versus just the people with the most power being able to capture the most amount of, of money. Cause I would, I would look at coffee and I think the biggest value in this cup of coffee I'm drinking is the beans that like create the caffeine right. and the, and the taste that I'm drinking. It's not the marketing. It's not like all of these other things that are added. Um, but that, you know, but there are some, I think, questions there about um, um, how do you how do you create supply chains that kind of put the monetary value that basically reward value added? Yeah, but like right. So, but right now they're saying that the value add is like all of the steps after the coffee right. is grown and harvested, yes, right? Right. Yep. Um, but. 
if like how do you create a situation where people recognize that like the biggest value in a cup of coffee is the coffee beans themselves um and how do you then kind of make sure that like the money flows to that value creation um and then there are questions of i mean your point about comparative advantage and kind of optimizing or not is an important one as well because when we were doing that first coffee report and we're looking at you know all of the countries that that grow coffee um one argument you can make to the roasters and retailers is that they want to ensure that coffee production remains economically viable enough that a number of these countries continue to grow it because that creates some resilience in the system and they the roasters and retailers then are not um, set up for huge shocks if there's like a, a big frost in Brazil or something. Um, so at least at the at their level, you're resilient because you have multiple sources, even right. if the producers themselves aren't being made more resilient by that. Right. And but then the question becomes, if by making that argument, are you actually kind of arguing that producers in a number of countries, even if they don't have a comparative advantage right now, should stay in coffee um, to create more resilience in a system that's not serving them? Um, right. which doesn't feel like a good argument to make. Um, but if you ask a, you know, coffee producers in a number of countries that maybe don't have the biggest comparative advantage right now in coffee, their families have farmed coffee for generations. They want to stay in it. Not all of them, but, but a lot of them want to stay in it and they want to be able to grow coffee like they always have, but they just want to be paid fairly for it, mm -hmm. which I don't think is... I, I, you know, I'm very sympathetic to that ask, but then, but then what do you do with that? So for example, when we were trying to think about what are the, what are the tools we could use to ensure that farmers can be economically viable? You know, I was really pushing for a dignity price that roasters or retailers could pay um, that would cover, that would maybe equate to a living income for, for a farmer. But then you look at the comparative advantage of all of these different countries and like what it costs to grow coffee in different countries, you would need a different dignity price in each country. And if you then kind of put that down and say, if you're going to buy coffee from Colombia, you have to pay this price. If you're going to buy it from you know, another country, you pay this price. That already happens a little bit because of quality differentials between the countries. But I think that eventually it would kind of just take you down the road of really giving advantages to like the cheapest producers um, and kind of undermining eventually the, the growers and countries where it's more expensive to grow coffee, unless they can really make an argument that, you know, the quality that they're, the quality of their coffee is high enough to keep paying that quality differential. Hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, it reminds me of the, I guess a similar issue with living wages that what a living wage is different depending on where you're living. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. The In Common Podcast is a partner project of the International Association for the Study of the Commons and the International Journal of the Commons. To explore more episodes of the podcast, as well as our blog, visit our website at www.incommonpodcast.org. Here you will also find a list of the members of our recently expanded team, as well as a link to our Patreon page where you can make a small donation to help us cover our operating costs. 
You can also follow us on Twitter at IncommonPod. Thanks again.